I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. At 14, I was a boarder in a school in the Appenzell. This was the area where Robert Walser used to take his many walks when he was in the mental hospital in Harrisal not far from our college. He died in the snow. Photographs show his footprints and the position of his body in the snow. We didn't know the writer, and nor did our literature teacher. Sometimes I think it might be nice to die like that, after a walk, to let yourself drop into a natural grave in the snows of the Appenzell, after almost 30 years of mental hospital in Harrisal. It really is a shame we didn't know of Walsh's existence. We would have picked a flower for him, Even Kant, shortly before his death, was moved when a woman he didn't know offered him a rose. You can't help but take walks in the Appenzell. If you look at the small white frame windows and the busy, fiery flowers on the sills, you get the sense of tropical stagnation, a thwarted luxuriance. You have the feeling that inside, something serenely gloomy and a little sick is going on. It's an Arcadia of sickness. That was a passage from the opening of Sweet Days of Discipline by Fleur Yegi, which was originally published in Italian in 1989. The translation is by Tim Parks, and the book is published by And Other Stories. The novel concerns the early years and the life of a young student at an exclusive boarding school in the Swiss mountains. Throughout the book, her strained relationship with her environment, her peers, and her inner self are subject to cold examination. In crystalline, almost Clinical prose, all is dissected and laid bare. The innocent exterior of school life is peeled away and the rotting core exposed. Join us over the next hour while we discuss this unforgiving classic of Swiss literature. Just a little disclaimer. We had some technical issues during the recording and you'll find that at the beginning of the episode the recording quality is not quite up to our usual standards. About three minutes in, the quality improves, so please bear with us. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to episode 30 of Sherd's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum, and I'm here with Rob Prouse. How are you doing, man? Oh, yeah, very well. Excited. 30th episode. It's incredible. I know, it's quite an achievement, isn't it? I mean, it has taken us like three years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're, no, we're, no, we're no WTF, that's for sure. Yeah. But, <laughs> but you know, how many books does he read to uh, prepare for his episodes? <laughs> yeah, today we're talking about Sweet Days of Discipline by Fleur Yagi. Are you saying Yagi? Yagi? However we say it, I love the idea of saying it. <laughs> I was saying in my head, Yagi, and there's something i just really enjoy that i don't know why it reminds you of like eggy bread i think yeggy bread yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, the funniest bit is quite how not appropriate this is for for this writer and this book to be kind of laughing and, and joking about the about yeah. the name this is just absolutely not the atmosphere but maybe this is a good counterpoint yeah <laughs> Sort of silly schoolboy humour for the extremely austere schoolgirl biofiction. But yeah, maybe it is a nice counterpoint. You're sort of brought down to a core of despair and then you can close the book and remind yourself of, of eggy bread. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, so the book is published in 1989 originally and written in Italian. And Fleur Yeggi is a, a Swiss writer who, who writes in Italian. Maybe the first that I've encountered, that, that I've, I've read. Is that the same for you, Rob? Yeah, I think probably... Yeah, I can't, I can't think off the top of my head of anyone else, so yeah. Mostly read Swiss writers, either having written in German or French. How did you get on with this one, Rob? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I loved it. In a, in a way, a bit like maybe the first time I saw a Bellatar film or something like that, like 
tough and austere. I'm kind of glad it was quite short because I think I really would have actually struggled to read this if it had been, you know, it is a novella or you know, like a very, very a short work. Uh, had it been novel length, I think I would have just fallen into extreme depths of despair. But for all that, I mean, it's, it's absolutely beautifully written. And once again, with all the usual caveats, it seems to be beautifully, beautifully translated as well, I think. There's something in the language that is like entering a kind of uh, very cold but very beautiful cathedral or something. There's a incredible kind of like architectural beauty to it. So yeah, I I enjoyed it a lot, and it's she's definitely an author that I'm gonna uh, read read more of. It's quite nice to know that there's a few other works translated into English. That's a good point you make. The feeling that remaining in this book's atmosphere is quite sort of challenging. It's for a short book, it's surprisingly grueling, I think. But you put it really well, thinking about it as a sort of cold cathedral. I had similar impressions, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons that I had trouble with this book. I have to say, it's quite a tough one for me to read and think about because there's something almost impenetrable about it I think and that could be to do with the sort of cold precision of the the prose there's a intentional denial of emotional depth that the narrator seems to insist upon and there's something that that really pushes against you as a reader you know as though it's true depth is behind this hard layer of ice and you can only make it out very obscurely. Yeah, definitely. And I wanted to ask you actually if it reminded you at all of the Annika van that obviously we discussed in a previous episode. Oh, actually, it didn't while I was reading it, but I suppose there are similarities. It's it's just that I would think of the lyricism of it as quite different. Mm. There's something quite intentionally poetic about the more lyrical passages of Annika van's ice than there is here, mm. which is the start of this book seems to be precision and and accuracy like a kind of poetic accuracy somehow rather than just like beauteous language for its own sake i i definitely agree in terms of style you know there's a there's a lot of differences but there was something about this kind of um the coldness at its core that i felt was very similar i saw them as i was kind of doing a bit of research i saw them kind of mentioned in the same breath use that term austere about her her language and yeah there's an article in the new yorker about her called the austere fiction of fleur yegi and i think the word really captures something about the, the tone of the narrator's voice there's something masochistic about it i think a real darkness to it simultaneously there is a real beauty to the prose as well it has this sort of brittle calcified kind of beauty like a like an ice sculpture or something that you, know, you, you fear could fracture and, and break down it's quite telling i think maybe that we're both using in a in an attempt to capture this we're both using adjectives of um, very real solid things because there's something you know for all its fragility there is something very physical about the weight of the text if that makes any sense mm. it's certainly not like a, a beautiful flowing wave of of language that goes into you there's something very hard about it it can be appreciated in a, in a kind of architectural physical way during the distribution of the post in the large and noble dining hall we watch the headmistress's hands as she gives out the letters slowly cautiously she would pretend to make a mistake and give me my envelope last i recognize the stamps the dignitaries of the country from way off the envelopes from Brazil were light and the airmail stamps had their perforations nibbled up like fruit by insects. I knew Frederick wouldn't write, but I persevered in the pleasure of taking my sadness to the limit, the way one does with some practical joke. The pleasure of disappointment. It wasn't new to me. I had been relishing it ever since I was eight years old. A boarder in my first religious school. And perhaps they were the best years, I thought. I understand you have some information about Fleur Yagi's life, Rob. Can you tell us a little bit about her? I can tell you that she was born in 1940 to an upper middle class family in Zurich. And much like the narrator of the book we're looking at, she spends her childhood and adolescence in boarding school. I've read a couple of different versions exactly of what happens. Seemingly she may move to Rome first 
after this experience in boarding school, or she may go traveling in Europe and then into the United States. Either way, at some point she does end up in the United States where she models, which I think the, the Wikipedia entry suggests she models gloomily. <laughs> <laughs> which I quite like. But then regardless of uh, exactly what order this is, she definitely ends up in Rome again or for the first time. I think this might be from the from the New Yorker article you were talking about, but she has described it herself, you know, her life in Rome at the beginning. She describes herself as, I went out with some boys, I rode horses, a pleasant and at once meaningless existence. <laughs> but whilst there, she also enrolls at the University of Rome and meets Roberto Colasso, who is very famous as an author in his own right and a translator and various other things, but also as the editor and owner of the Adelphi editions. They marry in 1968, which is also the year that she publishes her first novel, Il Dito in Bocca, which is the finger in the mouth. And it's also at this time, kind of in her late 20s, where she meets uh, Ingeborg Bachmann and Thomas Bernhard. The the people that she's around and the people she seemingly is part of her inner circle is kind of like a who's who of the literati in, in mm. Italy and beyond in Europe. Funny, just thinking of Bernhard, there's a similar harshness to his prose and the, the kind of sensibilities of his narrators. Maybe not quite in the same way. I mean, they're, they tend to be much, much more uh, cantankerous and, and hateful than the narrator of this book. But there perhaps could be some, some influence there between these two. Yeah, he's published by Adelphi. And so the possibility of them crossing paths is quite high. And the possibility of having read each other is also very high. But no direct evidence of mm. whether there's any specific involvement between them. Uh, she moves to Milan and she writes the book that we are looking at, published in Italian originally as Ibiati Anni del Castigo in 1989. Again, the experience of writing the book, she, she describes herself as an exercise in self-punishment, but however self-punishing, it was incredibly well received. The book itself receives the Baguta and Rapallo prizes in Italy. And interestingly, the character of Frédéric reappears, I don't know if you knew this, in um, another of the short stories in the collection I'm the Brother of XX. So yeah, maybe maybe suggest that there is a like a real life source or something that, you know, kind of draws Yegi back to this character. And another yeah, another interesting bit of information that I sort of came across and did a little bit more research about. It kind of mentions slightly offhand at the bottom of the uh, of her Wikipedia entry that she works with or had worked with the Italian musician Franco Battiato under the pseudonym of uh, Colotta Vike. Yeah, and I I quite like Franco Battiato. I don't know if that's someone on your radar at all, Sam. No, actually, he's so not. Like no. a, I don't know, experimental prog kind of new wave. We dug out one of the tracks she's credited to, and yeah, it's quite interesting. Bit of uh, sort of new wave conceptual piece about the um, travels of Ernest Shackleton. <laughs> yeah, it's very very much on the sort of on the icy theme that we've uh, yeah, yeah, picked yeah, up yeah, in her absolutely. work. Yeah, yeah, we, 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 yeah. I'll include a clip of that. I don't know, this idea of her also making this music perhaps kind of breaks through the ice a little bit and adds a, adds a touch of humanity. The translator of um, I'm the Brother of XX describes her as a monumental loner who has few friends, rarely goes out and turns down practically every request for an interview. But there's something, I feel this may be a kind of slight bit of myth-making. And um, Although the delivery is quite kind of staid and unemotional, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's very true. And it could have been could have been forced upon her. In a gun gun held to her head and told that she must make this prog album. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. 
even if she hadn't lived quite so much as she seemed to have. All the same, her tone of voice and a sort of intensity about her made you believe she had. She could have written a love story from a cold heart, like an old woman reminiscing, or a blind woman. Sometimes her pupils would fix on one spot and stare, and I didn't dare interrupt. Tu rêve. She wasn't dreaming. She was rolling herself a cigarette and closing it with her tongue. I often spent my free time in her room, almost always standing up. She didn't lie on her bed like my roommate. She didn't take her pullover off like the German girl who got hot. She was tidy, Frederic, obsessively tidy, like her exercise books, like her handwriting, like her cupboards. I was convinced that it was a strategy for not attracting attention, for hiding, for not mixing with others or simply keeping her distance. Tu es possédé par l'ordre. J'aime l'ordre, she answered, smiling. I understood those children who jumped from the top floor of a school simply to do something disordered, and I told her. Order was like ideas, something you possessed, something that possessed you. For me, one very striking aspect of the of the book is the way that the title is reflected, this idea of discipline and submission. And particularly, uh, I was interested in the, in the way that there are sort of echoes and reflections that occur between the narrator's inward and outward experience, perhaps both in the way that her experiences are internalized and then re- rebelled against. I mean, we should say at the beginning that the novel takes place mostly in a private girls' boarding school in the in the Swiss mountains and the atmosphere of the school is extremely strict and it seems to be run with an almost military degree of regimentation you know there are descriptions of the way that the girls have to wash very rapidly at a given time the way they fold their clothes there's a very strict hierarchy not only between the students and the staff but for instance between the girls themselves the students but they're also expected to kiss the hands of their headmistress and there's also a sort of importance in the hierarchy depending on which dorm you happen to be in and and our narrator is very upset at being kept with the younger girls in their dorm and not being able to stay with the the older girls there's a really strong sense of the the way in which that that regimented lifestyle impacts on the emotional lives of the the girls at, at the school definitely and obviously it's you know reflected in the kind of language and the way that the the kind of everyday life is um is spoken about these themes aren't kind of like hidden or need to be teased out right they're very very clearly there yeah there's a sort of excessive self-control that comes as as a result of it i think and is part of the tragedy of of the book that's reflected maybe in the prose style the darkness of of the narrator's reflections but one really strong instance of it for me was this reference to no theater i don't know if you noticed that rob ah uh, yeah okay this moment when the narrator describes she describes having gone to see a no theater company and and she says this at the end of the show I went backstage to say hello to an actor. He was packing his suitcase, or rather his bundle. He folded his clothes in exactly the way we used to fold them in our cupboards, with the same discipline and a sort of submission towards the materials. And I thought that connection between no no theatre and their everyday lives was really interesting because it sort of exemplifies the narrator's condition and in a number of ways and maybe by turn you know, the experiences of the, the other schoolgirls there. Firstly, maybe the idea of her life as a kind of performance you know wearing a mask at all times Mm. but also i don't know if you know much about no theater rob and i'm certainly no expert really but i I know that the minutiae of of movements are absolutely crucial there's very little expressiveness in the masks themselves and they they remain absolutely static so not a great deal is communicated via facial expressions but there's a kind of convention of how emotions are shown by these very very minute gestures it could be a movement of the hands or pushing together the feet or yeah particular attitude in the body 
for for instance, I think crying is signified by the actor just moving his palm to his forehead. I don't know. I just felt this connection between the the, the discipline of that form of theatre and the way that the, the narrator seems to control herself emotionally and consigns moments of enormous like passionate up upheaval to single sentences. Mm. For for instance, the comments on the the note that Frederic leaves her, the girl with whom she's in in love. She's been desperately in love with her for a really long time and and when they're parting she receives this note that just says ne sois pas triste or don't be sad and this is what she says about it she says i didn't keep the two sheets like a relic nor did i tear them up in that dark restless spring tossing them away into the void for a while i kept them in my pocket then they got crumpled the paper shriveled up it tore the ink faded Frederic's words were headed for burial. We can put a cross against certain words and place them in our minds with a file card. To me, this deepens the tragedy of that of that trauma because in addition to the brevity with which that trauma is communicated, which reminded me of those gestures in no theatre, it's also this mention of the file card as if the regimentation of her experiences has been so deeply internalised that she's able to treat her mind in the precisely the same way, you know, just to consign trauma to a portion of her of her mind to a, a note in a card catalogue and file that away i don't know this seemed to be to me to be a huge part of the way that she is unhinged not necessarily as a result of some inherent issues that she might have but specifically tied to the regimentation of the of the boarding school and i don't know if you made the same connection when you were reading the bit about the file cards and kind of going into your mind because previously she describes the mind as a graveyard in a, like very very similar terms you know the mind being this this graveyard or a, or a place to keep the you know the ashes of the dead and that that kind of speaks to a very repressed way of dealing with death that you um, you don't perhaps mourn you you kind of file them away and this seems to be this recurring thing of the constant pressure here is that she's learned and completely internalized this process of submission which yeah i think i think you've put incredibly well there but there's always this kind of bubbling up of what's repressed and it's uh, it's this constant effort for it to to happen and the the book is a kind of a description of this process almost mm, that constantly mm. there's this coming to the surface and kind of being pushed down and yeah these kind of like very terse sentences but structured in a weird way that i think you kind of touched on it a bit of there'll be these moments of um, upheaval i think you said which is a very apt way of putting it but will be followed sometimes by like a really inane everyday uh remark and there's no you know there's no paragraph break there's no it's just it flows straight on as if it's kind of come to the surface only to be pushed down again yeah there are moments of very flippant digression like that aren't there very very often an extremely dark thought might be just thrown in in a single sentence in the middle of a description of something totally unrelated the, yeah the your description of no theater reminded me quite a lot of the passage where frederic plays piano for the school it seems very similar in the way it's described she says she showed no emotion no vanity no modesty as if walking behind her own coffin oh wow <laughs> and um yeah once once again that kind of the link the link with death is kind of like a funereal atmosphere but yeah it reminded me a lot of what you were talking about in terms of no theater the the narrator describes Frederic at this moment as a as a great pianist and you know it clearly her her playing impresses the whole school but part of that is the lack of emotion and the lack of vanity and there's there's some kind of perfection there in this action devoid of of any affect i suppose mm. and ju- just thinking of the the irony of that performance and it just reminded me of the the irony there in in relation to the to the fact that one of the narrator's techniques to get noticed by people is that she she carries around a book of expressionist paintings mm. And sort of known amongst the other schoolgirls for for being interested in expressionism. You know, obviously the the, the great irony is that, that that's precisely what she's unable to do. She seems to be incapable of a genuine kind of self-expression beyond this very terse, controlled, inward 
rebellion that the, the, the narrative represents you know and maybe there's a connection there with seeing that kind of staid performance on the piano as as an expression of great art yeah because even the um the kind of moment where she describes these kind of early morning walks that she takes on her own before the rest of the school has woken up there's a moment where you think perhaps it's about to lapse into being overcome by the beauty of nature or something and she then says oh the landscape returns to its own niche and i have to go back and it's you know completely shut away from her this um, inability to express even in the moments that you'd expect perhaps something completely different i suppose yeah it's not it's not at all in that sort of teutonic tradition like rom- mm. romantic tradition of this yeah. sort of rapturous engagement with with nature it denies that even when you expect it to come and you know just the degree of submission that many of these girls are kind of subject to you know there's the emotional distance of the families of many of these mm. girls our narrator for instance has a parent in brazil who seems to orchestrate her life from a distance determining all the details of it you know right down to whom she's to room with what subjects she's to study even which language she's to speak in her free time and i think that level of repression that is required from these characters we get an inkling of what that can result in in frederick's character right who, who seems to govern herself with the same degree of discipline just unresponsive to the narrator's affections maybe even seems possessed of a greater degree of self-discipline it seems seems almost perfect doesn't she in, in the narrator's view yeah i mean certainly within the in the narrator's eyes she represents the kind of the absolute pinnacle of self-discipline and is constantly described in those terms this reference at the beginning of the book to robert walzer the, the swiss writer who famously died on on a walk i mean in the snow he took a walk out from his from an institution for the mentally ill where he spent most of his later life i thought that the these themes of discipline and submission that we, we see in the book might have their roots potentially in, in Robert Walser's book Jakob von Gunten in which a young man runs away from his family in order to join this school for servants and to spend his life in in subservience um i mean i don't i don't think this book is particularly uh, i don't know what the adjective would be valzerian <laughs> certainly not in terms of much of what i've read by by him he's far more bombastic uh, i would say but i thought that was an interesting connection seeing as his name is evoked on the very first page of of the novel you know it connects us to that to the landscape that the book is set in but maybe also just shadowed underneath that is this theme of subservience as well on on that note i I did come across like a really beautiful very short piece of writing you know like a a paragraph or two that was published in this kind of journal in memory of susan sontag after her death and Mm. yegi had written this um, short piece and it begins adieu suzanne one of the first times i met her it was in milan susan talked to me about robert volzer the writer who wanted to be nothing she seemed to know him well I mean, it's you know this this could be written. This could come straight from the book that we're we're looking at, mm. and, and certainly suggests that Yegi's mindset is is really not very far away from that of the narrator. But I was interested, yeah, in that the writer who wanted to be nothing. She seemed to know him well because that's certainly for me anyway. There's uh, there's something in the kind of discipline, and and certainly I think you connected it with the idea of perfection, which I'd I'd absolutely agree with. That to kind of like rid oneself entirely of of any personal affect or or emotion is the ultimate perfection in this kind of world Mm. it's interesting at the moment that the narrator is trying to be friends with frederick before their kind of friendship blossoms into something else she attempts to do this by memorizing a quote from novalis about suicide and perfection Mm. and i think the link of those two things is um, is perhaps really crucial here one winter afternoon We were sitting on the stairs. Frédéric took my hands and said, You've got an old woman's hands. Hers were cold. She looked at the backs of my hands. You could count the veins and the bones. She turned them over. They were shriveled up. I can hardly describe how proud I was to hear what, for me, was a compliment that day on the stairs. I knew she was attracted to me. They really were an old woman's hands. They were bony. Frederick's hands were broad, thick, square, like a boy's. Both of us wore signet rings on our little fingers. 
You might imagine we found physical pleasure in touching each other like this. As she touched my hand and I felt hers, cold, our contact was so anatomical that the thought of flesh or sensuality eluded us. That winter I bought myself a loose pullover and hid my body. My old woman's hands were all the more obvious. Death and decay. Well, these things are, are mentioned with such frequency. Like, it's all, almost absurd, but the, the frequency actually just brings it to something else entirely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just opening a page at random. <laughs> Grave flowers, sick petals, I can see on, on page 23. Our minds are a series of graves in a wall. Yeah, on the, on the next page. It is everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. But I was sort of thinking that this was um, like a kind of freudian death as like reduction to zero to this this kind of perfection of absolutely nothing that yeah is is for me like totally totally linked with the kind of discipline that the girls have to endure and take on to themselves because although there's constantly this description of the girls as dead or you know as i said like walking walking behind their own coffins mm. i think it, it describes somewhere there that they have a, a mortuary smell even even the cleanest of them have a mortuary smell, mm. but it didn't feel like death as a like a real a real desire to die. It is something far more to do with a preservation or a, of a, a preservation in as much as you know she talks about kind of like dried flowers or something to keep something in in a kind of like perfect stasis. Mm. Reminds me a bit of the uh, the famous young girl who's in the catacombs in Palermo in Sicily. Oh, that is amazing! That place. It's uh, yeah, really rec recommend anyone who hasn't been there to to look that up because it's um, really scary. But maybe a, a similar kind of thing, right? That there's a perfection that these girls are aiming for, and that perfection is is a stillness, is a is a picture. It's not a living thing. You hadn't considered it like that, but hearing you talk about it, there definitely is something like that. I mean, I'm just looking at a page now describing when she goes out on her morning walks. She says, "Frederic knew about my morning walks. Every day, I got up at five my roommate was asleep the school was cloaked in a subterranean wind life was rotting or regenerating itself just that twinning of those two processes seems to leave it in a kind of limbo space between death and life doesn't it the moment where frederick does leave or is you know is, is kind of taken away and again this is kind of there's a link with death because it is because her her father dies she describes the experience she says that day i learned what terror was something irrevocable and this is in, in reference to Frederick leaving. And it kind of made me think that all the references to death earlier, if this is the moment where terror kind of suddenly appears, the references to death perhaps aren't the kind of death that we're, you know, like a, a fear of death that would be worrying about kind of losing something, I suppose, that this is the moment in the book where loss comes into it. And the death earlier is in reference to something being preserved as absurd as that is but death involves the stasis and the not moving of something whereas terror applies when you do lose something and that's not a process of death necessarily the ongoing funereal aspect of the girls they they're still there their death-like state is described as being like a doll or a toy or, or something that is still the body is still very much there so yeah i was just kind of interested in that what what happens in the book when when the loss actually does happen how do you think this idea of death links to this one of the first things you picked out for me this idea of ch a childhood senility do you feel like that in in this environment they are artificially aged or, or pushed beyond you know, pushed out of their their natural state into a, a kind of self-control that they're not ready for is that what this phrase is about or do you think it's related to to death in some way yeah i wonder i, th I wonder if it's um yeah in, in terms of the idea the kind of very grim idea of senility or being, yeah, being senile in some way is uh, a kind of a death in life, right? Where you perhaps outwardly may not look different, but your mind is failing or you're unable to remember things. And so you, you experience a strange type of death within life. So I wonder if this is, for me anyway, within this context, perhaps that childhood senility, which is a yeah, phrase I, I really enjoy and I think sums up the whole book so well. At the very, very beginning, describing the area that the school is in, she describes it as an Arcadia of sickness, but then says, inside it seems, in the brightness in there is the peace and perfection of death. Mm. 
perhaps that actually really applies very well to senility too that there's a there's a sickness but on the outside the peace and perfection of you know that there may be nothing inside or there may be uh yeah, yeah like a like a lack or an absence but on the outside it can appear very peaceful Sometimes, when we were talking together, I thought about her, about her beauty, her intelligence, something perfect there was about her. Years and years have passed and I can still see her face, a face I have looked for in other women and never found. She was entire to herself, something dangerous. I never had the straightforwardness to tell her, nor to confess my admiration since from the very first day I always felt, despite a certain inferiority on my part in comparison with her, that before becoming close we would have to go through certain phases, like in a battle, and I had to conquer her. Everything was so lofty and tense. Words, tone and manner were weighed up. It took a certain mental effort. I wonder what would happen if, after a few weeks, instead of talking we had begun to put our arms around each other would have been unthinkable. We never held hands. We would have thought it ridiculous. You saw little girls holding hands along the paths, laughing, playing girlfriends, playing lovers. With us, there was a kind of fanaticism that prevented any physical expression. What did you make of the narrator's sexual interest in her peers? Did you did you see the desire as genuine? Is it a product of her sort of circumstances? It definitely plays into this whole subgenre, I suppose, of sexual awakening within single sex very restrictive education where it's never perhaps very clear is it is it a product of circumstances in as much as you know you you will be attracted to those around you regardless of gender or socially acceptable norms it's always i think within this book kept quite vague exactly what's going on the initial relationship between them the narrator describes wanting to conquer frederick but it's very difficult to know, you know, is this a kind of sexual desire? She talks later in the book about the fact that it was perhaps odd that they never kissed. But again, it's, you know, are we talking the kind of the kisses on the cheek that might be a greeting? Or are we talking something else? And then there's this point where she talks about the contact. Yeah, our, our contact was so anatomical, the thoughts of flesh or sensuality eluded us. But yet, seemingly on on the journey to the train as Frederick leaves for the last uh, leaves the school for the last time, she kind of professes her her love to her. So yeah, I mean, I think there is there is certainly a type of love mm. there, or like a desire, or I mean, this if this is not too overblown thing to say, but perhaps this is a a lack of you know of our ways of being able to talk about love or or desire that we are forced to categorize things into two very distinct areas of of kind of like romantic love Mm. and this kind of platonic friendship and that this doesn't fall into either of those categories i think that's a great way to think about it that it sort of spans platonic friendship like physical interest in each other and 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 romantic love all at once and kind of fluctuates between them but the the only reason i would question the genuine nature of it is not necessarily a matter of gender but more to do with the sort of approach the narrator has to her desires for these other girls the way that it is sort of inflected by the kind of discipline that she's experienced in, in the school is what makes me kind of question it. Because, you know, there, there are moments when the desire seems very genuine. She's sort of attentive to the other girl's bodies. You know, she watches her German roommate as she's washing, lounging around the room in various states of undress and does seem sort of excited by that but the same in the same moment describing that she would describe that german girl like this she stretched out on her bed like a slave in a harem half naked this german girl and very very often there is a power dynamic sort of injected into that desire Mm. and so and so there's the kind of i don't know there's a sort of wilting of the erotic under the 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 heat of that oppressive mode of interaction that she seemed to have learned from the school 
uh, and it, it makes it very sort of clinical in its approach. The the violence of this sexual interest in the other girls is really apparent. For instance, there's a moment when she talks about a missed opportunity to subordinate this young girl who loves her. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's also like competition and hierarchy involved in it. And in that passage, she describes it like this. One day I found a little love note in my pigeonhole. It was from a 10-year-old girl who begged to let me become her favourite, to make a pair. Impulsively, I answered with an unfriendly no, and I still regret it today. I regretted it then too, immediately, no sooner than I'd told her I had no use for a sister, that I wasn't interested in looking after a little favourite. It was getting to be unpleasant because Frederic was eluding me, and I had to conquer her, because it would be too humiliating to lose. I only took a look at the younger girl when it was too late and I had already offended her. She was really pretty, very attractive, and I had lost a slave without getting any pleasure out of it. Just the kind of language that is in there seems to be, I don't know, one that's not not necessarily the kind, at least in, in orthodox terms, that we would think about burgeoning sexual desire between young people, that there is this perhaps alien element in it that seems to come from the regimentation of those surroundings and the deep internal impact that they're having. The idea that the extremely harsh discipline of the school has made a kind of normal relationship outside of the idea of submission perhaps completely impossible like relationships have become codified i was also thinking in terms of that language of competition and conquering and slavery like how much this form of desire that's inflected by that and many other things in the book could also be a reflection of of this very particular class you know this this elite of culturally bereft girls whose parents all seem to be in in diplomacy or business or politics and they they want to mold the girls to their satisfaction and maybe the school does that maybe injects these notions of hierarchy and control into the girls from such an early age that they they can't interact with the world in categories beyond those ideas you know they either do that or they become very shallow or they have breakdowns and commit arson so the pressure is not just that of the school but maybe something that goes beyond it and has its roots in that elite class maybe you know you find it far more in um, education or like in descriptions of the education of boys but that you have to instill a certain coldness in order to be part of the the ruling class you can't feel too sorry for people i suppose to, to not put too fine a point on it that there has to be ice in the blood uh, mm. in order to take up these positions positions of power and perhaps this is kind of the thing that's uh, going on in these schools and also i suppose for these girls as well that they're being primed potentially for a for a life of subservience Mm-mm. perhaps even more so than the the sensibilities of the ruling class that um one assumes that as soon as they leave this kind of education they're probably going to be married and then have a husband whom they ought to obey in exactly the same way that they're obeying their school teachers at this point and so to be trained in the idea that every relationship is one of submission and domination makes a lot of sense here in the you know even in the 1950s or perhaps especially in the in the 1950s there was an element here that, because obviously it is, it is completely shaped absolutely by the submission and domination. It's in the language, it's very, very clear there. But what the narrator, I think, looks to Frederic and admires is this perfection of submission that leads to tragic consequences. But perhaps, although the narrator wishes for it, you know, she talks about how natural as a young person she finds what she calls the gesture of submission. But then equally, she talks about, I think when when she's talking about to Frederic about the folding of the clothes, Mm. Frederic says that she loves order. And then the narrator says, I understand those children who jump from the top floor of a school simply to do something disordered. Order was like ideas, something you possessed, something that possessed you. There's an interesting, for me anyway, like a really interesting thing going on here. She kind of desires this complete submission, but perhaps actually there's a 
process of the shift from childhood to adolescence that for me in these specific terms perhaps is the move from masochism to sadism and perhaps is then reflected in the kind of sadistic way she rejects Frederic. This new girl arrives and quite quickly the narrator just just completely drops Frederic. and there's a there's definitely a guilt to it mm. but she talks about punishing, you know, very explicitly talks about punishing Frederic. In fact, it's, you know, it's couched in like the most sadist terms you can imagine. She said, I'm punishing Frederic for my love. It felt like a kind of adolescent trying on of a, of a kind of sadist position mm. and the, the huge kind of upheaval and turmoil that would come with that kind of move from submission to domination. And certainly the movement of the two characters as they as they leave school that in the final school that the narrator goes to which is a, a school a finishing school so the, the narrator is being taught after her education that she seemingly doesn't engage with too much mm. uh, is being taught how to be a good housewife but she says to the mother superior that she has no interest in being a housewife and the mother superior says she understands and she's not made to and spends her time reading instead mm. whereas Frederic becomes this kind of almost ghost of a woman who has rejected everyone and in this very strange dreamlike sequence is shown living sort of in a uh, abandoned building or something and it's the most extreme asceticism you could imagine and it's, it's very difficult to tell what's going on at this point whether it really is Frederic or whether it's some other woman or um, yeah but it's certainly in the narrator's eyes she represents the absolute pinnacle of total total submission in that in that respect there's a reflection of the earlier description of Frederic there in the part when she's playing the piano and performing for the school when she's described as coming in like an automaton curtsying like mm. an automaton but there's also a description of her eyes yeah uh, she was impassive something fugitive fluttered in the eyes and mouth and this really reminded me of the figure of Olympia in Hoffman's The Sandman. I don't know if you've read that story, Rob, where the narrator Nathaniel actually falls in love with an automaton, not realising because of the, the blindness that his passion sort of casts over him. Mm. But at the end, the, the description of seeing Frederic again, she says, for the first time I caught a dullness in her eyes, an expression of disorientation, a haze, and I don't know, just that, that transformation that is undergone from a kind of mechanical perfection pushed to that degree that suddenly just breaks down and kind of shuts the life out of her. It's very, very dark, I think. Her eyes, which took no light from the trembling flame, were bright, calm beneath, lacquered, alien. Her face was partly hidden by her hood. It could have been a veil of marble wrapped around her. Her beauty hadn't left her, nor her determination. She looked at me with irony, challenge almost. I thought of this destitution of hers as some spiritual or aesthetic exercise. Only an aesthete can give up everything. I wasn't surprised so much by her poverty as by her grandeur. That room was a concept, though of what I didn't know. Once again, she had gone beyond me. I tried to understand. She sat on the couch, on a bed that could have been made of stone. It didn't give, the way she didn't give. I looked around at all four walls, into the corners. The room was almost entirely in shadow. My eyes went from her face to the void. She was calm. One, one thing I would say, maybe there's some sort of realism in that punishing attitude as well, though, in relationships in schools, mm. feeling that you have moved down or up in the, in the pecking order and uh, you used to be someone's favourite and now they've abandoned you. You know, those kind of 
intense developmental stages of, of one's life are kind of awash with those kinds of relationships sometimes yeah that's i think that's really yeah really good point that actually maybe it's definitely not so clear-cut anyone who's probably ever been to school will be able to recognize that there's a horrible thing that happens and you can see it as an adult in children that there's a point when they realize they can hurt other people yeah and yeah. there's a there's a trying that out and there's a understanding because you know you don't have the kind of emotional intelligence to know what you're really doing and thinking I'm sure all of us can can think back on things we did as children think you know and even as teenagers and probably as adults too but mm. think, you know god that was unbelievably cruel how could I not have realized that at the time and there's um, a kind of like a, a trying on of these roles and a coming to terms with them what the narrator sees as perfection of someone who doesn't do that as you very rightly say is um, like unspeakably sad at the end because it just becomes a constant process of kind of whittling away of the self to the point where as you say the kind of the spark in the eye is lost and there's um, very little there So how many sherds does Sweet Days of Discipline get, Rob? I mean, if we're being true to the sherds, right, it's it, we've got to take into account a certain unusual quality. I really love this book and I couldn't, I couldn't recommend it highly enough and I'll, I'll be revisiting it. So I think I will give it a seven, not because I didn't enjoy it, but it, it didn't necessarily have the weirdness, but it is, it is an absolutely beautiful book. Yeah, what about you? Well, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be perfectly honest and say that I wasn't wild about the book. I enjoyed the process of reading it and I really liked discussing it and, and thinking about it. But I almost found it too austere to use that <laughs> to use that term once again. That this feeling of being shut out of the book kind of took its toll after after a while. Mm. And it hasn't encouraged me enormously to go and read more by by this particular writer. Uh, although I am interested in this collection of stories, the is it I am the brother of XX? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I mean that's the one that appeals to me most too because I feel like you know you can read one grieve and then uh, read a few other things and (laughs) come back to it (laughs) and i also understand there's something sort of gothic about her imagination that comes out in those stories which which i'm quite curious Mm. about so yeah a really amazingly constructed book i sort of admire it but very much from a distance so i'm going to give it five shirts um which is quite a low one for me but it's it's purely a matter of taste i think We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherds Podcast. If you have any questions or comments for us, please write to us at sherdspodcast@gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps our visibility. If you enjoy the music on the show, I compose the vast majority of it myself, and it can be found on SoundCloud under the name Sherds Music. Most of it is available to download for free. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.